Friends, colleagues, and everyday decision makers, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are pleased to introduce to you Dr. Kerry Morich. Is that correct? That is right. Oh, Thanks for having me. Nailed it. <laughs> welcome. Um, where are you from? <laughs> Originally? Well, sure, yeah. Let's yeah. Origin story. Where are you from? Uh, where are you now? I'm where from you? upstate New York. Fantastic. From Binghamton, New York. And grew up there. And uh, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts now and teach at Boston University. Awesome. Wicked. And and so what uh, what research are we going to be talking about today, Kerry? Uh, well, today I was giving a talk here at UBC on uh, whether or not we can improve decision-making through training. Can we? I mean, without spilling. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll get into that. Well, so that's been a long-standing debate. So people for a long time now, for more than 50 years, have understand understood that people make errors in their judgments and decisions mm-hmm. that um, lead them to... Uh, make choices or or give answers that veer from normative models, so how they should behave based on statistics or logic uh, or various kinds of analytic um, assumptions. And this kind of question about whether or not we can improve these decisions has been a contentious debate since the 80s. So for a long time, people thought that decision-making can't be improved within the person. And so we've engaged in a lot of really interesting alternatives, like changing incentives um, in choices, like a soda tax, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you might tax some a behavior that people want to reduce. Um, or using nudges, like reducing the size of containers that people can drink soda from. So, for yeah. example, New York City had a ban of containers that were larger than 16 ounces. Right. So people might feel more concerned about buying two bottles of Coke than buying a 32-ounce um, <laughs> big gulp. One big gulp. Yeah. Right, yeah. And so those are all yeah. very useful kinds of tools for improving people's judgment and in choices and matching up their choices with better sort of long-term outcomes. But a big question is whether or not we can actually change the quality of people's decision-making themselves. Yeah. And so as recently as last year, um, you know, several luminary people in our field, like Richard Thaler and Daniel Kahneman, were really skeptical about the possibility of education, like debiasing training, actually improving people's decision, unless you remind them about the bias. Mm-hmm. And so the work that um, I've been doing since about 2011, it started off working with um, uh, various intelligence agencies, the United States government. We're trying to build a game that would improve analyst decision making. Uh, and by reducing six cognitive biases. And um, it sort of morphed into a larger research program, at least for myself, um, looking at under what kinds of cases can we see these kinds of improvements. Great. So really quickly, can you just give us a, a brief definition of what debiasing is? Sure. So what we're trying to do is reduce people's susceptibility to cognitive biases in their judgments. So we could think about, there's lots of ways that, let me give you an example of confirmation bias. Uh, So confirmation bias is a thing that many of us do. So when we have an expectation, um, whether it's about a person or about um, some scientific outcome or some policy, um, we are more likely to look for evidence that supports what we expect or what we believe to be true. And we're more likely to also interpret evidence in a way that supports our expectations or hypotheses when we're trying to figure out whether or not it's valid. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I believe in climate change, like most people in Canada, I assume do. (laughs) Yes, I think that's safe. I might might 
think about case and I was trying to convince someone who didn't believe in climate change. I might think about cases, the increase in frequency of hurricanes. I might sample that. Um, or I might sort of say that the fluctuation in temperature is indicative of, um, you know, climate change mm-hmm. um, more generally in the atmosphere. Whereas someone who might not believe in climate change might say, well, it's the variation in climate just means it's colder in the winter. So there's no global warming. Right. Right. And so both of those kinds of approaches might be more likely to consider a subset of information or interpret something like the change in amplitude of climate um, in a way that accords with their beliefs. Right. In a way, trying to just like cherry picking what makes sense for your beliefs, not taking the whole picture necessarily at all times. Right. So we there's a there was a universe of data out there when Mm -hmm. we're testing our beliefs. Do we look at at data that confirms our hypotheses and beliefs about what we believe to be true? So are we looking for confirmation of our beliefs or are we looking for really a balanced amount of evidence? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So that's a really cool type of cognitive bias. What kind of cognitive biases are you looking at in your research? I know there's a couple. Sure. uh, More than a couple. But uh, what specific cognitive biases are you targeting when it comes to decision making in all of us, I guess, in our own individual decision making. Sure. So we have been looking at confirmation bias um, that we think is a pretty important bias because it is sort of the structure along which a lot of other biases seem to adhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have looked at biases like anchoring. So anchoring is a case where when you're trying to make a judgment, an initial piece of information might be overweighted in the final judgment. So for example, if I'm asking you, what do you think Mars's orbit is? What would you say? Uh, <laughs> I would not know. Are we talking, just, just give me an uh, estimate of days. How many days oh, long days. is Mars's uh, orbit? Let's say 150. Mars is further from the sun than. Maybe it just goes faster. <laughs> <laughs> I have no 150? idea. Honestly, I would say whatever number you tell me would be my strongest belief. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about the yeah. solar system. <laughs> you could tell me it was a million days, and I'd be like, okay. Sure. Well, Mars's orbit is 860 some days. Okay. Okay. So I, I'm going to believe that. So most <laughs> yeah. most most people start off with the orbit of the Earth, right? Okay. 365. Right. And they're like, Mars is further from the Sun than the Earth, so it should have a longer should orbit, longer. Yeah. right? Okay. And so so two three times more. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the problem is, people show anchoring because they're much more likely to give a number under 800, and I think it's 61 or 69 than. 67 then then beyond that right okay and so anchoring suggests that the number is going to be more likely to fall short right or here's a you know if you think about another example so um what do you think the gestation period of an elephant is so in other words how long do you think an elephant carries of an embryo to birth um i'm gonna say i'm gonna guess despite their size i'm gonna say it's similar to humans because i know humans have a very long gestational period relative to others so i'm going to say like uh, let's say eight or nine months okay uh i'm gonna say 12 months it's 22 months so yeah so (laughs) in both kinds of cases we're using the human yeah as our human labor as our anchor right yeah Yeah. absolutely so you just did i did exactly that you were a perfect example of anchoring kyle (laughs) thank you yeah Yeah. we we didn't coach any of this beforehand (laughs) yeah yeah and so you know we're looking at anchoring in these kinds of cases we also look at cases where anchors are suggested by the environment 
Um, So, for example, um, even realtors who are experienced in buying and selling homes are really influenced by the listing price of a house. So there's a really interesting study by Northcraft and Neil where they brought realtors to a house. They showed them all the information about the house, like the comps, um, you know, what the number of bathrooms and bedrooms were. And then they gave them different list prices. And um, I think the real value of the house was around $70,000. And some of the realtors saw an anchor that was in the 80,000s. And some saw one that was in the 60,000s. And those anchors swung their estimates of like the actual value of the house by about 10%. Wow. So even a realist realtor who had seven years or more of experience was still influenced. You know, and imagine you go to a professional, Mm -hmm. you know, you'd hope that they would be immune to these kinds of Effects. And that's yeah. that's why people were so reticent to think about debiasing training as being effective. So you see effects like that for realtors. Um, you see really interesting framing effects for physicians. So if uh, a more risky surgical procedure is um, framed in terms of the survival rate mm-hmm. versus the mortality rate, mm-hmm. right? People have dis- different kinds of risk preferences, even physicians over um, they show the same kinds of flip in their risk preferences as patients. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite things um, is uh, philosophers are as susceptible as their students to like variations of the trolley problem. So, <laughs> so in one version of the trolley problem, you have to decide, do you want to flip a switch? Like a, a trolley is on a, on a track to, and it's going to kill yeah. right yeah. four people. You, if you flip a switch, it, it'll, it'll kill, kill one them. instead. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to do that? Like most people say yes. Um, or the other version is there's like a large there's a person on a bridge with a backpack um, and you can push them off and it will the trolley will run them over and like stop before it kills the other four people. Right. Do you push them over? Most people say no. Yeah. So okay. philosophers are as susceptible as undergraduates to this problem. And so these kinds of cases led people to say that debiasing training is probably going to be less effective right. um, than trying to do things like nudges or incentives. Wow. And to think that they could find philosophers who hadn't already been biased <laughs> by having been exposed to this problem in the first place is kind of unbelievable. <laughs> I would have, I would have expected that would be like philosophy one hundred and one. Here's yeah, the trolley it's like problem. The Pavlov dog, Pavlov's dog of psychology, more or less. Yeah, the problem, yeah. yeah. So fundamentally ingrained. I, I'm philosophy. not sure where they found them. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, they found them somewhere. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. So we're talking about then, you know, sort of ways that maybe we could get to debiasing, and and you've said that maybe that's not possible. Is it at, an, at the individual in, at the individual level? Yeah, at the, yeah. The, nudge, level. the more sociological nudges or yeah. So that so that's like led the field back. to really focus on these questions by nudging or qu- focus on incentives. So things like soda taxes or the changing the serving size of, of the sodas. Right. But approaches about teaching people about decision making and cognitive biases and giving them feedback on their biases has been traditionally viewed as being less successful, and so people haven't really implemented it. And so uh, we had this kind of crazy grant from IARPA, which is um, a subsidiary of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence for the mm-hmm. U.S. government. And they basically said, we're going to take a gamble and see if it might work. And so what we want you to do is develop serious games, which are video games with educational content mm-hmm. um, that will hopefully try to debias people from six different kinds of biases and intelligence analysis. So as we talked about confirmation bias and anchoring before, Mm -hmm. also um, we were looking at things like representative heuristics. So people using similarity to judge probability. Um, So things like neglecting base rates. um, So 
ignoring the frequency of events and making judgments about their probability, mm. um, looking at questions about projection bias, so overestimating the percentage of people who agree with you on a particular topic. Um, so if you ask people, for example, like, do you like dogs or cats more? If you're a dog lover, you probably overestimate the percentage of dog lovers. Yeah. If you're a cat lover, you probably overestimate the percentage of cat lovers, right? <laughs> um, and there are more serious problems associated with of that. Of course, yeah. Um, That's one of the se most serious problems in everyday yeah. life. It's yeah. if you're a dog or a cat person. Definitely. <laughs> and then things like the fundamental attribution error. So uh, are we more likely to assume a person's behavior is driven by the their disposition then is warranted. So do people neglect situational influences on behavior? And, and then the last one is biased blind spot, which is um, pe most people tend to think other people are more biased than they are. Mm -hmm. So everyone says, yeah, other people are biased, but I'm less biased than they are. <laughs> yeah. I'm immune to this. It's yeah, like definitely. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, my whole worldview. <laughs> yeah, and so the the game really tried to target these six different kinds of um, biases. We had two games. Each one test um, tried to intervene on three of the biases, um, and what happened was it had a play teach loop structure. So there's okay. three levels. Then each level, you're uh, you're basically in a detective game and you're trying to solve a mystery. The first one is wrapped around. Um, a uh, fraud committed by a pharmaceutical company okay. and so during the um, gameplay you're given lots of different problems that are designed to elicit the biases but you don't really know what you're doing and at the end of each level experts explain what the biases are uh, they give definitions they give mitigating strategies they give examples from where professionals like doctors or engineers or intelligence analysts had committed the biases and their consequential kinds of ex instances and then people are given practice examples and they're also given personal feedback based on the real-time game performance so right on, yeah. if you wow. made a biased answer in the game it would walk you through wow. why your answer was biased yeah. if you made an unbiased um, answer in the game for a particular problem it would explain why it's not biased mm -hmm. and then we give people more practice problems yeah so the wow. game takes about 90 minutes there's three levels um, lots of different kinds of problems and examples. And what we found were really sort of surprising results. So we didn't expect to find much. And we actually found that um, we reduced people's bias substantially um, immediately from before they took the game to afterwards. And we found really large effects even two and three months later. Wow, because I was gonna say, Every time I hear about these biases, I straighten. It's like whenever you're someone talks about posture, you straighten your yeah. back up right yeah. away. I find that with cognitive biases, I do the same thing for a day or two where I'm like, I need to be really aware of all these cognitive biases. But two to three months is a really long time yeah. to continue to have those differences. Yeah, and we haven't tested it beyond that. So yeah. we don't know what the sort of lifespan of the training is. Is it permanent? Is it oh temporary? God, yeah, yeah. Um, but we have done other kinds of studies too. So we just ran a really interesting study that's coming out in psychological science. And what we did was we had um, at HEC Paris, the administration of the school was very generously let us run a study with um, all the students in three different professional programs. And so the wow. school sent out an invitation to the students to take make use of this debiasing um, intervention that's used by the um, you know, U.S. intelligence services that should improve their managerial decision making. And that was sort of what they saw. And then what we did was we surreptitiously in, um, introduced a business case into all of their courses um, that 
measured their susceptibility to confirmation bias. So we use their, their answers to the case. There's a yes or no question. Mm-hmm. Um, we use that to measure their susceptibility to confirmation bias. Did they answer with a co- hypothesis confirming answer or a hypothesis disconfirming answer? And then we also coded their explanations of their decision um, for confirming and disconfirming arguments. Right. And so we basically use natural variation in the training schedule. So some mm-hmm. people received training, signed up for training before the case was administered. Some people signed up for training afterwards. We left that up to the students. Oh, um, and we disguised the um, case and training as being different. So there's a different faculty member administering the training in the lab, mm-hmm. and um, people just had their normal professor administer the case. And so there were no explicit connection between the training and the case. And we found that um, people who had received training before the case were 29% less likely to choose the hypothesis confirming answer, which was also like the wrong answer. So it's not just hypothesis confirming and right. It was also that we're improving their judgment as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's an incredible finding, truly. I mean, I mean. What's, like, yeah. what, I, what I think is really hopeful, too, is that it's the case is based on the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. So okay. in this case, you're the um, head of an automotive racing team. And the basic premise of the payoffs in the case and the probabilities of different kinds of outcomes suggest that you should, you should race your car in this, in this upcoming race. Mm-hmm. But the, the temperature at the start of the race is very low. And then you have an engineer who provides you with some information, two different graphs that, um, and and uh, the engineer has a hypothesis that the engine may fail at a low temperature. And if you look at each graph individually, there's not really a clear pattern there. But if you map the two graphs onto each other, so one is about temperatures with failures, and one is about temperatures with no failure. Um, like which at what race like in which races mm-hmm. were there failures or not if you map those two together it's very obvious that um the engine is like almost certain to fail which is the situation that the um norton thiokol engineers found themselves in when they were talking with nasa about trying to um, cancel the space shuttle challenger right. launch we usually try and talk about the implications of the work that it might have in real world real world like yeah. situations yeah i was just about to say i think these i think this is abundantly clear where the the real world implications are and it's not necessarily just within you know engineering or business practices that this is a, a or intelligence current, analysis or intelligence, yeah, yeah. Or intelligence analysis like these aren't things that are stuck or these biases aren't just in those areas this is happening every day and every almost every decision you make uh, that's supposed to be informed is, might have these biases included. Uh, so, I mean, you've already given a bunch of examples of where this, but what, what do you think are the most common situations that people are kind of seeing are these biases are impacting people's lives and they're not really aware of that? Yeah, I think these, it's hard to say what's the most common case. Cause I think mm-hmm. they impact so many aspects of our life. So, um, you know, I flew out here on a plane yesterday and it was delayed and, and some people were pretty testy on the plane. And so the question is, are those people jerks or are they just frustrated? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a case of like fundamental attribution error. Right. Yeah. I know um, I've, I've seen Kyle drive his car a lot too. Uh, and road rage asses. is a thing. Yeah. Uh, some people can manage it and some people don't. Right. And that's probably the biases that they're carrying within that as well. Yeah. Or you could say, you know, you might observe, you know, like um, our university is trying to diversify the faculty in the, in the school. And, um, you know, you could see 
biases in other people perhaps in the way they're evaluating candidates but you may not see the same kinds of biases in yourself and so there you exhibit bias blind spot right or you right. might watch you the news it, and yeah. say like how could this person believe this right like that's such a biased belief and not see your own biases and, and your own beliefs and attitudes yeah so yeah. there i think these biases are really interesting because we run into them every day whether we're reading the news or talking to people hiring someone um, you know, deciding what's a true hypothesis as a scientist, right? So you read your data, they're ambiguously supporting your hypothesis. <laughs> are you, are, do you commit confirmation bias and say like, oh, like, well, what if we like reran the study or, you know, yeah. what if these participants were, we ran the study in the morning instead of the evening, right? Yeah. So people, people come up with all these kinds of things to justify their beliefs. It's funny you bring that one up because I was, that was one that I was thinking of as, you know, in academia where stuck making decisions and interpreting things and you know our expertise and being able to interpret them is solely bound by the fact that we've done a lot of legwork to get to this point it doesn't mean that we're good decision makers it just means that we've done a lot of reading and so something like this training program for you know that kind of the, that group of individuals would be massively beneficial i'd imagine mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think part of Part of the challenge in our society is that there are a lot of problems that are big and there's not a certain optimal path. Yeah. And these kinds of cognitive biases are particularly likely to surface in those cases. Yeah. So if you're trying to think about which refrigerator to order, right, you can get reviews and look at reliability statistics and think about pricing. And that's really sort of a preference about how much reliability versus price do you want to trade off right mm -hmm. yeah um and that's a gamble right so we can make gambles there uh but in cases of how do we prevent how do we do our best to minimize climate change or how do we get our children to eat healthy foods or you know should we go on this vacation or save money for retirement right those are kinds of problems that all of these kinds of biases can influence mm -hmm. yeah yeah so you you have this game that you've seen has impacts on you know two to three months after you they've participated in that game with with uh de-biasing yeah what are the next steps to kind of improving upon this and getting more people to be de-biased or de-biasing more people is yeah, it just playing the video game or is there other options that you think that might be more viable other than the nudging and the other like uh if you have anything to add oh i was just going to say maybe in part two to that is what can people do to de-bias themselves if they don't have access to the game that you've created right so um we actually like I don't sell the game, but the game is available commercially. Um, but uh, there, the government did make a debiasing video that's also effective, publicly available on YouTube. And I'm happy to share. Yeah, you. we'll share yeah, link whenever we post the yeah. episode. Absolutely. Yeah. And so there are two videos. Each one's about half an hour, um, and those do seem to produce medium-sized but long-lasting reductions in bias. And and I think that the big surprise to me, or at least is how effective these interventions have been, whether it's a video or a game. Um, and it leads me to think that a lot of the sort of roadblocks that people stumbled on when they were looking at debiasing training was that a lot of these biases are really hard to measure. And we took a lot of time to develop very sensitive measures of bias. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the problem may not be so much in particular kinds of ways of debiasing as in the measurement of right. how, like, how stable are these biases in people across time? Mm -hmm. And so with those measures, I, you know, we find movement even with very sort of brief interventions. And so I would say, if you have time, watch, watch these videos. And if you don't, you know, there are great books out there, like mm -hmm. thinking fast and slow is a, is a good book 
sort of explaining these kinds of cognitive biases, mm -hmm. you know, read. Um, even we found watching YouTube lectures made by other professors seem to change people's susceptibility to fundamental attribution error. So, you know, I, I think the question is try to find or like a reliable source of information. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I and mean, then, yeah, bring yeah, podcast. Listen, then. expose yourself to it, I guess, is the big thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Just being aware of it and continuing to expose yourself to the idea that there are these biases that you might be susceptible to. Yeah. And just keep in mind that we we feel that we're less biased than other people, but everyone feels that way. Yeah. So some of us have to be wrong. Yeah, it, it, it honestly reminds me of a paper I just read. Uh, it's not, not in biases, but it's uh, similar to it. It's the idea that people think that uh, they people watch more than others. And the truth is that's just it's actually impossible that more people are obviously going to be looking at you than you'll be looking at other people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so just to give you an example of like the prevalence, we had a one sample of 661 people. And we asked them, these are Americans, we asked them uh, about 14 different biases. And we said, how much do you think you commit the bias? And then we asked them, how much do you think the average American commits the bias? Mm -hmm. So out of 661 people, one person said they committed the biases more often than no the average American. <laughs> right? So one. that's less than 1%. <laughs> yes. And 85% of people said that they were less likely to commit of these course. biases than the average American. And the others said they're even. And then there were a couple sort of break even. Oh yeah. my goodness. So, man, so oh it's, it's a, so we all think pretty highly of ourselves, I think is, the, it's, it's just that I, I imagine we're just so stuck in our own heads and we assume that we, we wouldn't be making these biases. Right. But and we haven't tested the sample in Canada, of course, maybe, maybe, <laughs> oh, maybe sure Canadians are more modest, <laughs> <Yeah>. but. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> I don't see there'd be a lot of difference there. But. I can't imagine there'd be any difference. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Marge. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule while you're in town to uh, stop by and visit with us and chat and share some of your work. Um, if you've enjoyed this program, uh, you can find uh, more episodes on uh, bravehousepodcast.com. There we'll have links to iTunes, uh, Google Play, and Spotify, where you'll be able to uh, download or listen to all the other episodes that we've produced. Um, if you've liked it, uh, leave us a star or two, leave us a comment or review. Uh, it's always nice to get a little bit of positive feedback, positive reinforcement, and uh, we'd be happy to hear it. If there's something you don't like, let us know too. Maybe by email. Don't leave a review of that. <laughs> don't leave that out there in the public domain. Anyways. Check your biases as well. Check your biases <laughs> Make as sure well. that it's not a biased opinion. <laughs> uh, before we go, though, Carrie, is there anything that you'd like to shout out or anybody that you'd like to, you know, you have the floor if you want. This well, I just episode. say that this research wasn't just my own effort, but yeah. was a part of a huge team. And so um, there are lots of great people who I've been working with. It's a team of yeah. maybe like more than 20 people at this point. But yeah. uh, it's That's certainly awesome. been a collaborative effort. Absolutely. And thank you for coming on uh, the, the podcast. We really enjoyed yeah. having you. Thanks yeah. for having yeah. me, Drake and Kyle. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.